investing in enterprise software has become a competitive business. Lots of venture capital firms compete for the good deals at every stage. This level of competition has driven more capital into those early stages. Ed Sim is a partner with Bold Start, an early-stage enterprise investment firm. He joins the show to talk about modern enterprise investment strategy, as well as his own varied personal experiences in working at funds. I want to mention that we're looking for writers and podcasters to work with Software Engineering Daily. If you're interested, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, or send Erica an email to erica at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Ed Sim, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan. Yes. And normally we talk about a lot of engineering subjects. Some of the episodes are more high level. I think this will be more of a high level episode in the vein of Software Daily, which is the website we've been building, kind of the direction we've been going with the podcast, trying to be a little bit more general than just software engineering. So I think this one is going to be a little more high level. It will be technical in a different direction, more around the venture investing technicalities. So let's start with Venture investing in the 90s, which is when you started your career, what was that like? What was venture investing in the 90s like? Well, back in the 90s, there was one rule back then, and it was that the sun rises and sets in Silicon Valley alone. That was pretty much the only place to do real hardcore tech investing. So when I kind of grew up into the venture space, I was doing it out of New York, which at the time didn't really exist. And the only thing that we knew about New York was one thing. Uh, when Willie Sutton was asked why he robbed banks, he said that's where the money is. And if you think about New York, that's always been the case about enterprise software and budgets. So we knew that the money was always there. The question was, is how do you build kind of this whole software ecosystem in New York? And then eventually, how do you leverage that to invest beyond New York in enterprise software? So that, that was kind of what it was like back in the day. What were the economics like for a venture firm in the 90s? I'd say that you know venture wasn't really an institutional category like it is today. I mean, you have like a lot of your stalwarts, you know, the Sequoias of the world, the Kleiners of the world back then. Uh, but the economics were, were pretty much the same. It was like you know two two percent management fee, twenty percent carry on profits, right? That's that's kind of a, a percentage of the profits. But you know, I think it's been relatively unchanged since the '90s and today. And, you know, even if you look at kind of there's a great book called, uh, I think, VC, it's a history of VC. It goes back to the whaling days, if you believe it or not, where people would actually raise private capital to fund uh, whaling excursions and uh, very venture like from that perspective. And there is this kind of profit sharing percentage, et cetera. So I think that's where the VC kind of really comes from. Today, a lot of the investment opportunities are about access. The great deals are widely known, and they're highly competitive. Back in the 90s, was it hard to get access to deals? Were they as competitive as they are now? They definitely were not as competitive as it is now. But I think also, uh, Jeff, it really speaks to just the evolution of enterprise software. I mean, who would imagine that today... You know, companies, I think back then the idea was, hey, can I get a $500 million enterprise software market cap? Can I get a billion dollar company? That's an absolute enormous, enormous return. But today, I mean, you know, you have five, $10 billion companies that are private. Uh, and then you look in the public markets now, you have 30, 40, and then even Salesforce is probably worth $250 billion. So just the numbers are, are much different. But back then, you know, it wasn't, you know, as competitive. There wasn't as much money. But at the same time, there weren't as many companies either. So, you know, I, I think you got to take 
um, take a balanced view of, of the world back then and today. Are there first-generation companies from that era that you remember that are interesting comparisons to today? So, like, you always hear about the comparison to from Webvan to Instacart, and Webvan was like the 1.0 version of, of Instacart. But I wonder if there are also examples in the vein of enterprise software, things that have interesting comparisons to today or things in the, in the present moment that are mimicking what happened back in the 90s. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll actually give you some personal experiences. So I was the first investor in live person in 1998, which is a public company today. They just uh, released their Q2 earnings and absolutely crushed their numbers. And I think that company is sitting at a 3.8 to $4 billion market cap now. Back then, I invested, I think, at a $6 million pre. Um, and the idea was, was very simple. Uh, Rob's idea was there's this new thing called the hosted model, the hosted software model. The name back then was the ASP model for application service provider. And his view was that if you could provide a hosted kind of software model, you know, which SaaS is today for live chat, that live chat should be on every website and you shouldn't be on hold anymore calling folks. And this was 1998. That was the vision. Uh, if you look at it today, think about Salesforce Service Cloud, think about Zendesk, and then think about our existing portfolio company, Customer with a K which you know, has gone on to raise a couple hundred million dollars and has some of the largest customers you know, using their platform. So that would be a great analogy of that. Another good example would be you know, GoToMeeting. I was the first investor in GoToMeeting in the day when WebEx was kind of the market leader and we came out with a disruptive pricing model. We came out with an all-you-can-eat model back in the day and that company grew pretty quickly. We ended up selling it to Citrix. And as of a couple of years ago, it was actually generating about $600 million of revenue a year for Citrix. What does that remind you of? Zoom. So that's what's interesting about the enterprise software space is that the beauty is that every 10 to 15 years, maybe there's a fundamental re-architecture of how things get built. And there's an opportunity for someone to come out and disrupt what already exists. And that's what I think will always happen in the enterprise software business, you know, looking out 10, 15 years from now. And you have to ask yourself, what is out there today that may get disrupted by someone new? A lot of the shows that we do are about software engineering, and software engineering is closely associated with computer science. I think eventually there's a level of abstraction that the product does not require an, a background in computer science to understand. I'm wondering where that level of abstraction is, because you make investments in enterprise software companies that often are kind of technical, but don't necessarily require computer science or engineering background. What is the the modus operandi for somebody who does not have a background in computer science to understand some of these more technical investments? How do you actually go about it? Well, look, it, it's pretty interesting. I mean, uh, when I look at how we do things, you know, when we look at founders, the first thing we look for is a technical founder. That's though there's the only folks that will back, you know, building some, you know, new enterprise category. Second thing is, is what is their unique insight? You know, what pain have they experienced over 10, 15, 20 years where, you know, they need to solve and they can't stop thinking about it in the shower at night, you know, in the car, in the commute. You know, how do they kind of think about that? And, and they want to make a dent out there. So when you actually meet those founders, I'll give you a good example, like Dimitri Sorota and Nimrod Vax, who founded Big ID. That was kind of one of the first companies out there to go after the uh, PII or, you know, uh, personally identifiable information space. We funded that before GDPR was passed. And this was a problem that they had been thinking about for a while. 
And, you know, they had this technical viewpoint about how to build it, right? I mean, their view was that, hey, there's stuff called DLP technology out there, which allows large enterprises to see, you know, a social security number going over the wire, a credit card number going over the wire. But the problem was that it wasn't associated. It wasn't associated with a unique ID, with a person. And what if they could actually take all that information that was floating around and tie it to a person? And if you tied everything to the idea of a person technically in the database, then you could do a lot with that. You could figure out kind of what data do you have on them. You could figure out who's accessing that data. You could figure out who has the rights, roles, and privileges around it and then build a business around it. So, you know, that would be an example of, you know, understanding the pain. There is a technical fundamental re-architecture of how to think about what was already out there. We could easily identify a social security number, but the breakthrough was tying it to a, a person. And then what we also did was call around to potential customers. You know, being in New York, going back to my earlier point about where the money is, we're very close to a lot of CISOs and CIOs and CTOs, people with billions of dollars of budgets. And we can ping them and ask them, hey, is this a problem you have? How are you solving it? And a lot of times people, A, are trying to build it themselves and just can't. Um, or two is, you know, it's a problem that they have and they just haven't found a solution. And so you marry kind of a great technical founder with technical insights and you kind of understand the market opportunity a little bit from the very beginning, from the buyers with the budget, that's when magic happens. That's a very descriptive insight. You said that the sun rises and sets in the Bay Area. That has changed to some extent today. How have the New York and the San Francisco investment communities diverged? Yeah, I don't know if it's diverged, but I can tell you kind of us being uh, where we are in New York. Many people thought of this just as a New York fund. And look, there's some great New York enterprise companies. I mean, look at Datadog that's out there. Just in our portfolio alone, we have customer with a K, Big ID, uh, which is New York and Israel. We have Security Scorecard, which, you know, we did the seed and Sequoia and GV came in and raised rounds afterwards. So there's a lot of great companies in New York. But looking at our fund four, uh, which is a $112 million seed fund, I think out of the first 14 investments we made, 10 have an international flair to them, meaning that uh, we think New York is a great bridge between Silicon Valley and Europe. And we have companies now with founders in Paris, in London, multiples in Israel. We just signed a term sheet with a company in Vancouver, Canada. We have Halifax, Canada. We have fully distributed teams where people are located all over the world. So I think the, the point is, is that, look, Silicon Valley is great to get deals done. It's great for partnering with tech companies, but the world has become more global. And commensurate with that, there's a lot of Valley firms now who are hopping on planes or are used to pre-COVID doing deals in Europe. I think Europe and, and, and is, a, is a much fast growing kind of area. Uh, in New York, I remember like 15 years ago, it'd be hard to get a Valley firm to pay attention to anyone in New York. And now before COVID at least, we had, you know, a couple of VCs from the West Coast in our office every week trying to figure out what was there in the landscape. They're all trying to leave, you know, their, their locale, right? You know, kind of that, the rule of, you know, investing within five miles of where you are. And they've really had expanded their horizons, which is, in my mind, really wonderful to see. There's this term anti-portfolio, which is the, uh, the, the list of investments that you could have made, but you did not make. Are there any companies from the 90s that are in your anti-portfolio that you wish you would have invested in? Absolutely. The one that stands out in my mind the most is web methods. You know, my prior firm, actually two prior firms before this, I actually knew kind of the, the founder of web methods, kind of Phil America, I believe, 
was working at a portfolio company that we had called Magna Software. And he was spinning out to create this new company called Web Methods. And the idea was that he had this uh, technology called Whittle, where you could actually, and a partner, I think the first customer was DHS, kind of that shipping company. But it was kind of the precursor to XML. You, you take structured queries you know, across uh, applications and tie them together and make it easy for end users to access data from anywhere in a website. And that was the inkling. And I had the opportunity to put 250 in and like a million or $2 million valuation. And, you know, one of my partners nixed it. <laughs> and, and I was pretty upset by that, actually. And you, you can see where web methods eventually became at one point in time. I think it was the precursor to kind of a new industry. And that's one that always sticks with me in my mind. From 1998 to 2012, you managed a company called Don Treader Ventures. So that was one venture firm. What was your thesis? What was your thesis back in you know those the 14 years you were at Don Treader? Yeah, so it was actually 98 to 2010 to 12. But the thesis for us was pretty simple. The uh, actually there's two evolutions. One is that when I started the first fund in 1998, it was a 20 million dollar seed fund. I guess back then it wasn't called seed, but it was a $20 million fund for super, super early stage. And at the time, our thesis was that we want to bring a Silicon Valley approach to investing in New York City, which means that we wanted to care about people and product and tech and market opportunity versus looking at spreadsheets. You know, back in 98, in New York, you had all these ex-bankers trying to do venture investing, and that's not the same. You know, we wanted to take risk on people and technology. And the second thing we wanted to do was leverage kind of relationships with the Fortune 500 and see that, you know, can we provide an unfair advantage to the founders that we back? And my partner at the time, uh, a guy named Bob Lesson, he was uh, vice chairman of Morgan Stanley in his past. He was head of the investment bank at Smith Barney. He was my partner, helped raise the capital. We raised from, you know, some of the top CEOs from the Fortune 500. And at the time, you know, they kept reaching out to us, asking us, what is this internet thing? And they wanted to figure out, you know, how could we at Dawn Treader fund companies that could help them figure out, quote unquote, what the Internet was. And so that was the first thesis. Uh, And what I learned from that was, you know, once again, was, you know, going in very early, but also understanding that, you know, there's corporates who have a lot of pain. And if you can understand how to navigate them and kind of match them with founders really early in their journey, you can accelerate kind of success. Fast forward. In 2001, about three years later, we had just had, you know, live person go public GoToMeeting was doing very well. We had a bunch of other companies, and we ended up raising a much larger fund. We raised you know, $220 million or so, uh, and the idea was to write bigger checks. You know, We had actually written a check into companies that were like the precursor of Box and Drop, Dropbox and companies like Xbox. Uh, I mean, XDrive. XDrive was kind of the original kind of storage in the cloud, but the pro- and they went on to raise, you know, after our investment, probably $120 million more. But the problem back then was that you know, there's no broadband. <laughs> broadband wasn't that prevalent and storage costs were so high. I mean, I think the trending was right, but that's another thing I learned is that pioneers get arrows in their backs, right? If you're too early, too ahead of the curve, you know, you may not make it to, to kind of see what, what the long-term really looks like. But there's a lot of things that I saw in the past that have become pretty de facto today. But that, that was the thesis around, around that time was continuing to write bigger checks. When we, when we kind of finished in 2010, I just sold a company that we had backed in the very beginning I was on the board of called Green Plum. Uh, you may have had some ex-Green Plumbers kind of on your show, um, but what ended up happening is we sold that to EMC and it eventually spun out as Pivotal Software. 
And, you know, with that experience, and we had a pretty nice exit in that, with that experience, I had all these founders from Green Plum coming to me from GoToMeeting when we exited, you know, a few years earlier saying, hey, Ed, I just don't need $5 million to start an enterprise software business anymore. I just need like a million dollars or a million and a half dollars to get started because there's this thing called Amazon EC2 that's out there. There's this thing called open source. And I just need a little bit to nail it. And then, you know, I need real money when I want to scale the business. And I started writing some personal checks uh, myself into some of these startups. One was, uh, once again, a little too early. I wrote a small check into a company called Eucalyptus Software, which uh, at the time was trying to create an open source kind of hybrid cloud computing platform. Eventually, Martin Mikos became CEO of that, you know, the, the ex-CEO of MySQL, and we sold that to HP. It was, once again, too early, right? <laughs> but the point of, of, of Boltstart was we, we, we saw so many technical founders who actually didn't want a $5 million check. They just wanted a small check, but they wanted the advice and the experience that a, that a bigger check would give you, and that's kind of the genesis of how we started. Interesting. So I want to get to Boltstart in a second, but you mentioned an interesting point about X Drive, basically a Dropbox, early version of Dropbox that did not work because of broadband, lack of access to broadband. I wonder, is there any equivalent with 5G? Is there anything that did not work pre-5G that will work with 5G? Oof, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. I don't know. I just think that uh, anything, you know, video related, anything with high bandwidth needs, I think are being incredible. Let me give you an enterprise example. Uh, I don't know kind of where the investment play is, but I was talking to the CTO of a very large bank. This was pre-COVID, about two months before COVID. And he said that, man, you know what? I'm trying to replicate these trading environments for all my uh, traders. And if I just had 5G, I wouldn't have to worry about it. I wouldn't have to have all this redundancy. I can let them do whatever they want, wherever they want. But, you know, I just think that the freedom of doing things even like trading, which these with sub-millisecond kind of needs, I think will will expand tremendously. I'm not sure where the investment opportunities are, but that's just a good example where I didn't even think about, you know, that as a alternative, uh, to be honest with you. General question related to fund management. So I think a lot of the listeners, not a lot of listeners, but there are a good number of listeners who are people who work in investing. And a lot of them are early in their careers, they're associates or maybe principals. How does that role compare to managing a fund? What do you see as a manager of a fund that people at the lower levels might not see? Yeah, you know, I like to actually think about myself and my partner, Elliot, as we're entrepreneurs, we're founders. And when people come to me and say, hey, I want to start a venture fund, I ask the question, are you prepared to not make money for 10 years? To not know if you're any good for 10 years? And they look at me with a puzzled look. And the reason I say that is because, you know, venture is a long game. I mean, when Elliot and I started, kind of both started in, in 2010, that was the second fund that I, I had started. I'd started, you know, Dawn Treader Ventures before starting in 98. But, you know, Elliot and I didn't even take salary for two years. And people thought we were absolutely nuts. Who is going to go after enterprise kind of seed back when there were pretty much generalist seed funds in the day based out of New York? Are you guys absolutely nuts? And we started with a $1 million fund. And then in 2012, we had like four exits. We sold companies to Akamai and Salesforce, you know, and LinkedIn and others. And we started out with a $10 million fund in the next fund. And then fast forward, you know, 10 years later in 2020, we have a $112 million fund and a $50 million opportunity fund. 
But boy, man, that's been quite a journey. And every time you're, you're taking less money than you would doing something else and you're writing checks out of your own pocket. So first, you need to think of like a founder. Secondly, you know, there's a lot you need to do from quote unquote managing funds. You need to think about not just the individual investment, but how do I build a portfolio? You know, am I going to build a portfolio of 50 kind of scattershot investments or am I, am I going to build a concentrated portfolio where I focus on ownership? You know, those are two questions you need to answer. Two is, how am I going to allocate my time? You know, am I going to join boards um, and once again, take a higher conviction approach or am I going to take more of a spray and pray model? And there's all different kinds of models. Three is, how do I raise capital? How do I sell that, you know, sell my vision? And, you know, four is, how do I assemble the right team around me? So once again, you're just like a founder. You need to think like a CEO, you know, and if you and a co-founder started something, how do I, how do I build a business and how do I think about the overall business? It's not just the individual investments. It's more than that as well. Most of the companies that you have invested in successfully have gotten acquired. How do the acquisition type exits compare to IPO, IPO type exits? Well, I would say that IPOs aren't really exits in the sense that you're, you know, you still have to hold on at least six months uh, until after lockup if you can even sell the shares. So it's more of just kind of a another kind of step in the journey to creating liquidity for your investors. I would say overall, if you can take the companies public, then you know ultimately the valuation is going to be much bigger, right? I mean, like let's look at Datadog as an example. I don't know what the market cap is now, but let's just say it's well in the 20s that you know they they had some offers to be acquired right when they're filing for like six or seven billion if you remember and so you know look at where they are today no one would have predicted where they are today right based on that and maybe people have thought they're nuts for turning down six or seven but you know a smart investor once told me that you know every uh, company that has become a billion dollar company probably turned down an offer for 100 million and every company that became $5 billion probably turned down a billion-dollar offer. And every company that became 10 turned down a $5 billion offer, right? So I think if you can go public uh, and you believe that you have the repeatable metrics quarter after quarter and you have that machine built, then that's something you should probably go for. But if, you don't want the, if you're a founder and don't want the headaches and if you want kind of that you know, instant liquidity event, then, then an acquisition probably is, is the way to go. But the key in any of those journeys, by the way, Jeff, is that you never sell. You're not in the business of selling. Companies are bought and not sold. So usually what happens is a partner reaches out or someone reaches out because you're making a dent kind of in their customer base and they reach out to you to proactively try to buy you. And those are the best acquisitions, to be honest. So in 2010, you finally started Bold Start, which is what you're doing today. We've caught up to there. You mentioned that the thesis was to write smaller checks with an expertise of a larger check. Why is that a thesis worth following? So at the time, we were definitely uh, against the grain, to be honest with you. But two is, I think that at the end of the day, is that founders still, look, there's lots of money that's, that's out there right now. But I think that the world is going to eventually kind of move towards either full stack funds, right? Funds that do everything from early to late. And they're also going to, or specialist funds. So you'd put us in the specialist fund bucket. Uh, then I think when you look at kind of where we are in the market, um, there's you know pre-seed, there's seed, there's post, and there's a lot of confusion to be honest with you. And the way we think about it is that, hey, 90% of our investments are pre-product. It's investing in technical founders who have some magical insight. Uh, and what we're really good at is at partnering with these founders, being patient, 
and surrounding them with experience, people that have been there before, that have you know exited before, that have built big businesses before, but also remember what it's like kind of in those early days, and to help them kind of accelerate that path to product market fit. And what that really means is that you know maybe we save them three months or six months or nine months. That means less dilution for them. It means less headaches for them. It means them getting a better kind of follow-on round or their first round, you know, like an A round. And so that's kind of what we're geared towards. And, you know, that thesis of kind of being there always for these founders, I think, has resonated well with with kind of the enterprise community that we've worked with. And, you know, in particular, developers, right? I mean, you, you deal with a lot of developers and a lot of engineers. And I'd probably say that even if you look at our portfolio today, probably three quarters is more developer first, you know, oriented investing. And the other quarter is, you know, application stack investing. So it's worked well. And I, and I think that if you look at the results of our portfolio, I mean, you know, companies like Sneak, which is a developer-first security company, most recently publicly announced uh, that they're worth over a billion dollars, and that's you know happened in four years. So, and, and this area now is pretty exciting overall. What expectations do you have for the fund performance? Oh well, look. I mean, at the end of the day, we we're targeting you know literally like a minimum of a three x net return, but more likely more like a five x net return on investment is is the goal that we set out for ourselves. And that's, you know, if you think about the early stage aspect, if you can have the courage and conviction to buy kind of double digit ownership early in a company's life cycle, you're obviously paying a lower price. But then if you have a big enough fund to maintain that ownership, maintain the pro rata over time, you know, and you have kind of a two, three, $5 billion company, it's much easier to turn 5X net, you know, on a $100 million or $150 million fund than it is on a billion dollar fund, right? So the return profiles over time change based on the size of fund because uh, it's much harder to de- deliver that much value you know at a billion it's harder to deliver five billion of equity value than it is you know 750 as an example million so you went from dawn treader to starting bold start why not just do this under the auspices of bold start why did you want to start an entirely new fund most of our investors at dawn treader at the time this was like I left in 2010, but I kind of knew kind of early 2009 that I would have to start something new. A couple of things. One is most of our investors were corporate investors at the time. So you can imagine that the Lehman collapse happened, you know, September, October of 2008. So there was no corporate money. So there wasn't an institutional base. Two is the fund at the time was, you know, $220 million or so in size. There are a bunch of partners around. None of them shared the conviction uh, as I did about going super, super early. I mean, you know, going early is not for the faint of heart. It takes a long, long time to invest in two founders with a slide deck to figure out if you're good or not. And I was just passionate about it. I'm just, you know, as I said, once again, you got to be a founder and be passionate. And for my partner, uh, Elliot and I, it was, we were very passionate about uh, helping founders, you know, take that first step of their journey and building a great enterprise business. And that's what attracted us. And none of my other partners were interested in it. And how did the founding of Bold Start compare to the founding of Dawn Trader? How did the early days compare? It kind of happened by accident, <laughs> to be honest with you. As I said, I was writing some personal checks into some enterprise founders, you know, some repeat founders that I knew. And one of my friends, a guy named Jim Pitko, who I backed previously, he had actually started a company at Xerox Park and spun that out in the search space. He ended up eventually selling some of the assets to Google. But he introduced me to Elliot, and Elliot was working at a family office at the time and writing some checks in the valley. And 
gyms like the two of you should get together. So that's kind of how we got started in a serendipitous way. And Elliot's like, look, um, we'd love to, we'll love to co-invest with you and partner with you. And, you know, here's a million dollars. Let's see if we can write 10, 100K checks together and see how that works. And I just said, okay, why don't we do this? Let's just call it a fund. We'll call it Bold Start Fund One. And, you know, for me, Jeff, the idea was eventually that I was going to do that for a year and then try to figure something else out. Uh, and fast forward 10 years later, Elliot and I are still at it and really having a blast. So you can almost liken it to kind of, that was our seed round. It was very experimental. We had a hypothesis. Our hypothesis was that we could find 10 really good enterprise founders uh, who needed our help and money in the very earliest days. You know, back then, the pre-monies were 2 to $4 million pre-money for these enterprise companies, believe it or not. And yeah, lo and behold, here we are still doing this quote-unquote experiment and you know, adjusting our model along the way, which is quite fun. What is it like to be in that check size? Because like, I, I do some very early stage investing at this point, and what's nice is that companies can almost always slot you in. If you're writing just a, you know, a, a very small check, 10K, 25K, even up to 100K, you are going to be welcomed into the round if you have some re- remote chance of adding value. And I wonder how that compares to when you're writing, what would you say average check sizes for bold start, like 500K to 2 million or something? Yeah, for now, it's about 500 to about two. Uh, in, initial check size, right? And we'll we'll stick with a company throughout, you know, at least through the Series B. So it could end up being six, seven million plus into one company over time. Right. So so how does, like, do you feel like it's competitive? Is it often competitive or can you usually get in 500 to 2 million in the in the competitive deals? So I think that's, that's a great question. So the evolution of writing 100K. So first of all, j- just from your perspective, when we started writing these 100K checks, the round sizes were like 500K to a million. <laughs> and now the round sizes are, you know, upwards of, I mean, I've seen seed rounds upwards of like seven or $8 million in size. So, you know, I think that 100K might have like a 10 to 20%, in, you know, be 10 to 20% of the round. So you have a much bigger impact than that would even be t- in today's round size. Two is, um, I think as you kind of move up and write bigger check sizes, I think it's for us, it's even more important for us to be there first. You know, when we meet these founders before they start their companies uh, and help kind of socialize the idea with them and think through some questions, problems, what's exciting, what might be issues. I think if you can get there earlier and you can show up and be like, hey, look, you know, if you want to raise $2 million, you know, why take 250 in all these chunks? Why not take 1.5 from us and let's see 500 K open for angels, you know, like you and, and a bunch of others. So I think it really depends on two kinds of deals. One is there's, there's some of those opportunities where you've just known the founder for a long time and they're just happy to kind of work with you and you can kind of write the check size you want. And others, yeah, they, they've definitely become more competitive when you want to, you know, write one and a half million dollars or $2 million out of a two to $3 million round. It definitely becomes more competitive uh, over time. And that's where kind of experience and knowledge and you know, understanding and patience all come in when working with the founders. Is there more LP appetite for venture capital these days? Like the the LPs that that actually invest in the venture capital firms, how do the returns compare from their point point of view? Like, are they are they hungry to invest in venture capital that 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 works, or do they still see it as overly risky? What's the LP appetite like? Yeah, so that's a great question. I would say there's two different kinds of LP appetite. LP appetite for new funds right now, just non-existent because of COVID. You know, they want to spend time with people and beat people in person. 
So if you're a new fund, I think it's much tougher to get quote-unquote institutional LPs. On the flip side, if you're a fund that already has institutional LPs and you've got some proven performance, there's more than plenty LP capital out there because, you know, look at this environment. It's a zero interest rate environment. You know, a lot of these LPs are capital allocators, right? So they need to think about where do I get my best returns? You know, there's the public stock market, which, by the way, has been on fire, you know, lately in, in some, some respects from the tech side. But then there's this asset class called venture capital. And I would say that there's probably more interest in venture capital these days for longer term returns and helping these larger kind of institutions build out a balanced portfolio because, you know, I mean, the performance has been pretty good. Look at the stock market. Look at the IPOs coming down the pike. Look at the acquisitions. There's probably more interest overall in the category than there was before because of, you know, the overall financial industry and and where returns are. How has your perspective on venture changed since the beginning of your career? You know, it's funny. I, I actually tweeted recently about, you know, someone once told me when I was getting their venture capital, that's all about the people. And I didn't really understand what that meant, right? Is it what school you went to? Is it kind of what you did? And, and you know, I think the answer is, is today, it's still all about the people, right? You know, first of all, I think you need an index for good, honest people with values. Two is, you know, from our perspective, we're partnering with mission-driven founders that care the most about product, right? And, and getting that in the hands of you know, everyone out in the world. And three is, is just kind of, you know, finding that tenacity and that growth mindset in founders. So I think my, my, my understanding of what it means for it's all about the people has changed over time based on experience. Uh, and I'm learning every day from people, even people like you and, and everyone else. I just, if you can take every interaction as a learning experience and how do you use that to make a new investment or help another founder out, then I think you can go a long way in the business. It sounds straight in a way, by the way, but it, it's really, really true. And I'll give you one last example that TechCrunch came out with something called the TechCrunch list. I'm not sure if you saw that. I did not see that. Oh, wait, was that the list of like every single investor? Based on surveys from founders. And the founders were the ones that said, hey, who are the best first check investors, you know, like at the very beginning for each round? The, the people that set the terms for the round and they attract all the other capital and do the most work and who are the most loved kind of VCs around that. So their approach was to build a different kind of list because there's so many investors out there. So I guess that's a leading question. So who who is near the top? (laughs) Well, yeah, that is a leading question. But we were one of the, you know, I guess one of 11 that were selected as kind of the the, uh, VCs who founders love the most. And, you know, the point, once again, is just it's about the people. That's, That's not just an overnight thing. It's been, you know, for me, 24 years of a journey of partnering with people through thick and thin. And you know, with my partner Elliot and with Shomik and Natalie and, and the rest of the team, it's it's been, you know, a 10-year journey. So, you know, that's something that is super, super important to us and goes back to my earlier point. Do you invest in consumer companies or is it exclusively enterprise software? What's a consumer company? Mm-hmm. <laughs> just kidding. No, we don't. I, I just can't even, you know, look, I'll, I'll be honest with you. In, in fund two, you know, kind of our $15 million fund, we had like a 10% kind of side pool where you could kind of, you know, experiment with different kinds of companies and investments. You know, we did a few kind of consumer things thinking that if we learned about viral marketing and consumer consumer interfaces and swiping and that we can bring it to the enterprise, it was a terrible experiment. We, we lost all the money in that 10% bucket. So, you know, that was 2013, 2014. And we never looked back. We never touched another one since then, (laughs) which has been the best thing ever that happened to us.
the I don't know if you follow the crypto space much at all, but there's also some so there's some crypto companies that are becoming more and more like enterprise companies. I think just because of the uh, what is happening in the decentralized finance world. I suppose that's another area where you're not spending any time. We're not spending much time there, although we do have, you know, as you know, one of our big themes is developer first, and hopefully we can talk about kind of developers because I know that's a big, you know, kind of audience of yours. But we have a company called Blockdaemon, which reminds me of kind of a Heroku meets New Relic for blockchain. So basically, if you want to create a node on a network, either you have to learn how to build on that node or you can go to Blockdaemon and we'll get it set up for you in a few clicks, host on any cloud provider, and then connect you to the mainnet without much coding at all. And then we have a monitoring uh, layer as well, kind of like New Relic or Datadog that you know tells you how those nodes are performing and when you may need to add new things. So it, that one was you know less of a crypto finance play than is a pure developer kind of interplay overall. What keeps you up at night regarding Bold Start, regarding the firm? You know what keeps me up at night is whatever happens during the day or the week, where founders, you know, have a reason to call us and ask us for help. Uh, that could be anything from, you know, over the weekend we're helping a founder out with their story and their deck and reaching out to the right people for their potential Series B, to you know, interviewing kind of engineer engineering candidates for a two-person company where they want kind of an investor to provide the thumbs up for the vision and why we invested and why we think it's going to be big. So, so for us, it, it for me it changes every day. Um, luckily, just to be honest with you, we're in the spot where I don't have to worry about where our investor capital comes from. I've got some really good institutional investors that, you know, are kind of with us for the longer term. So that's not a worry of, of ours. It's more about how do we support our founders? How do we help them through a tough spot? Because, you know, every founder journey has multiple tough spots, you know, through that process. So you mentioned developer first is one theme. What are some other themes that you have around what you're investing in a Bold Start? So developer first is definitely a, a big theme. Uh, I'll say another big theme for us is kind of, and we touched on earlier, is kind of reinventing kind of uh, SaaS that's already been out there in a, in a better, you know, faster way. So for example, customer with a K is something that we seeded, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago. And uh, the founders, Brad Birnbaum and Jeremy Surreal, had sold their prior company, Assistly, to Salesforce. Uh, and it became their first customer service platform at Salesforce called Desk.com. And, you know, they were there for a couple of years. I had the experience from live person, uh, as you know. And uh, they came to us with this idea and they said, hey, look, you know, we have this idea that right now, if you look at Zendesk and, and Salesforce, everything is treated as a ticket. If you, Jeff, reach out to a retailer or, you know, kind of a software provider, then uh, if you reach out by email, you're a ticket. If you reach out by chat, you're a ticket. If you reach out by Twitter, you're a ticket. And they said, what if I could fundamentally change the architecture of the database? And the fundamental unit should be the person. And if I could start with the person, then everything gets appended to that so that if you reach out to me, there could be almost like a news feed where I see everything about you. And then secondly, on top of that, I could allow you to add any type of data structure you want. So for example, like a ring, which is one of our customers, you could add kind of all their IoT data in so that when you reach me, Jeff, you could figure out that my Wi-Fi is slow or my Wi-Fi was down or that I didn't upgrade the firmware or things like that all in one interface. So while it doesn't seem so technical on the front end, you know, kind of a SaaS application, the underpinnings of the back end was a highly technical, uh, scalable infrastructure that is supporting, you know, billions of objects now. But that that's a way of kind of re-architecting, re reimagining kind of what was already out there and 
you know, they've been off to a pretty good start. And what else has been difficult about managing Bold Start? What have you learned about improving yourself as a manager? You know, I think it's practicing what you preach in terms of, you know, one thing I like to tell founders is that hustle is not a strategy. Hustle is a great way to kind of maybe get your first five to 10 customers, but doesn't scale, you know? And so um, you're only as good as the people that you hire on board or that you team up with. And so I think just, you know, scaling the team, going from just me and Elliot and doing everything to bringing on folks like Shomik, you know, as a principal, to Natalie, our head of people and platform, to Charlotte, who kind of manages their office, to Max, you know, who's, who's our associate, I think, you know, and getting them up to speed and teaching them and spending the time with them and letting them run with the ball, right, and, and kind of, you know, make their own mistakes, you know, just like founders would do. And I think that's something that, you know, I've been learning over time and, and I think getting better at and getting better at kind of who those hires are and kind of what those unique, <clears throat> unique insights are. The best thing about this business is that you need someone that is cares about not venture capital, but that cares about creating that next big and finding that next big enterprise software opportunity, finding the next great company in the next great category. And I know that, you know, Shomik, and Shomik is kind of like that. He's intellectually curious. He's always reaching out, asking questions. And, you know, if you can have that mindset of always learning and looking for the next thing, I think that that is kind of something that we've honed as well as kind of an important trait of anyone that joins, you know, joins us. The venture rounds seem as competitive, as dynamic, as aggressive as they were 12 months ago. It feels like coronavirus has almost no effect on venture capital. Has it changed the venture market at all? (laughs) You've really highlighted it. Are you seeing tremendous deal flow coming through your uh, inbox these days? Uh, Not really, but I I would say it hasn't really changed. The volume of companies hasn't really changed. I can tell you one thing is that I think there's a lot of pent-up demand where after the first couple months, people are managing their portfolio and then all of a sudden kind of got used to COVID for the longer term. And I was talking to someone the other day, one of our investors, and I said, look, they asked how you're, how I was doing. I said, first of all, thank God the family is, is happy and healthy, and I've got time with you know my children that I would never have before. On the flip side, I, I think the world has been turned upside down, right? You have a madman as president. You have COVID raging and people still not paying attention to kind of the masking laws. And you have you know the Black Lives Matter movement. So, And you have a lot of un- unemployment. And I said it almost feels criminal because right now I'm busier than I've ever been. I mean, it's like we're we're closing. We just signed our fourth term sheet, you know, during this COVID time. So that'll be four deals closed since we entered this process. And just, you know, nonstop new pitches, new ideas, great founders that we're seeing. So there's a tremendous amount of energy. In fact, I don't think it's slowed down. I think it's accelerated in the enterprise space, at least, even in the first check space in the last kind of, I'll say, 45 to 60 days than even before we entered this phase. Mind-blowing to me, actually. How long should it take to deploy a fund like that? You said the the most recent fund is $120 million? It's 112, yeah. And then we have an opportunity fund of of 45, which is for after Series B. So how long it takes to deploy? I think think everyone goes on various cycles. If you look at some of the larger funds, it seems like they're raising every two, two and a half years. For us, our pacing is every three to three and a half years uh, is where we, you know, is typically what we've done in our history. And I think there'll be no different, right? Because, you know, technically speaking, our first close was held in September of 2018. Our second close was held 
September of 2019. So we started investing actually in the middle of 2018 before actually our fund was closed. So, you know, I think every three years is a good time frame to balance out diversity and diversification, not only in terms of companies, but also time frame, right? So our investors can capture three different years of, you know, market, uh, where the markets may be, right? Some markets may be hotter one year, the maybe less so another year. So it also gives time diversity as well, which is important to LPs. What should engineers know about venture capital that they might not know already? I think it's funny, right? I mean, engineers should not be afraid of venture capitalists. <laughs> I think they should find uh, partners in crime, right? I mean, I'm just really specifically talking to engineers who have open source projects and are, and are starting kind of their journeys. Uh, I think the second thing is, is that not every company should have venture capital. Right. The second you take venture capital, I mean, you have to think what investors are thinking, right? They're thinking about how do I generate, you know, at least 10x, you know, on each investment. And maybe there are certain categories where you're better off not raising venture capital, maybe just some friends and family. So I think when you understand a particular that journey, you have to think through that. And I think the second thing you need to think about is don't think of venture capitalists as money. Think of them as a partner. How do you, how do you find a partner in your journey? There's this movie. I'm not sure if you saw Into the Wild or read the book. That was a, a pretty influential book or a, a movie for me, actually. Oh, why so? Just curiously. Well, it's like the rejection of the established path, you know, from basically the age of, you know, teenage teenager to the time of his death. And for those who don't know, it's this, this kid who basically rejects society and he goes and travels around. He's extremely happy uh, until he dies. And I saw it when I was in college, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. I'm do, here I am doing this kind of prescribed thing. Maybe I should be doing this other thing. I think that's why I brought it up, because I, I feel the same way. And the second thing is, the last part of the movie, he writes uh, before he passes away, happiness is best shared with others. So, you know, talking to engineers... The best thing that we love is when that engineer calls us or slacks us or texts us saying, hey, you know, we just got our, our new kind of product design mock-up up on Figma. We just got, you know, a new hire. We just got our first customer, right? So find a partner where that you're going to want to pick up the phone or just reach out to that person, you know, and, and treat them as a partner and not as an investor, right? So I think if you can find that kind of relationship, that will carry on with you over and over again. And so, you know, who is that first call you're going to make? And if you feel comfortable calling that investor, then they're not really an investor. They're your partner. And I think that's kind of what, what the magic that you should look for when you're embarking on this journey, right? Because it's not easy. And you need someone that's, that, that will be there with you through thick and thin. Okay, Ed. Well, that seems like a great place to close off. I appreciate you coming on the show. It's been great talking, and I hope to talk soon. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Thank you for having me.